Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. We're really going to pick up where we left off the last time. We're going to talk today again as we're in a little mini-series here, how to live without losing heart. The last time we saw the symptoms of one who's lost heart, but now we're going to talk about the secret of one who has not lost heart. I don't know about you, but I'm so encouraged by verse 1 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians when Paul said, he says, therefore, therefore, since we have this ministry as or just as, even as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. The reason that encourages me is because we can live without having to lose heart. How many of you besides me have lost heart sometime in the ministry and in your life as a Christian? Yeah, we've all been there. It's a bummer, isn't it? Nobody wants to go there. It, it's not a fun thing to happen when a, a believer loses heart. It's the word ekkakeo is the word lose heart. Ekkakeo means it's associated with being weak and faint-hearted, but it really has more of a deeper meaning of fleshly, of a person who's turned back. That's the root idea of the word, to go back to the evil, wicked ways of his flesh. Trusting his flesh to do what it cannot do. It's going back to doing things one's own way instead of depending upon Christ who now lives in us. It was used of a soldier uh, turning, turning coward in the midst of battle and going backward instead of forward. Uh, Paul says he does not lose heart. And you know, if you put that in context with what he's been teaching of the fact that he's a minister of a new covenant. He doesn't lose heart. He said, I'm not going to go back to doing it the way I used to do it. I'm not going to resort back to my old fleshly agendas of a trying to accomplish a ministry for God. I, I'm going to live in the life that God has given to me. Chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, he said, I'm now a minister of a new covenant, a servant of a new covenant. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, not that we're adequate in ourselves, to consider anything is coming from ourselves. What humility. But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. He's talking about the law and how it puts to death every fleshly effort to please God. But the Spirit gives life. Now, because he's a servant, and by the way, again, I, I said minister, but that's interchangeable. That word servant can be translated minister. Because he's a minister of a new covenant, Paul has discovered a brand newness of life. 
as he talks about in Romans 6. He, he, he's found his adequacy is no longer in himself, as we just read. His adequacy is in Christ. It's not up to him anymore. It's up to Christ who lives within him. The law says, say no to sin. Grace says, say yes to Christ. And it's a huge difference of the focus of the believer. It's about what Christ has done and what Christ is doing and what Christ wants to do in not only Paul's life, but others as well. In fact, he told us in chapter 3, the last part of it, <clears throat> he is daily being changed from glory to glory as he lives practicing the very presence of Christ daily. He will not burn out because he's not going to depend upon his flesh anymore. Now, he may be worn out, but he'll never burn out because when you live this way, depending upon the one who lives within you, you don't burn out. You're living in his strength, not your own. We looked at the symptoms last time of what it means to lose heart, and I'm going to hit them very quickly as we review. Prayerlessness was the first one found in Luke 18 and verse 1. It's a symptom of a person who's no longer depending on God. Prayer is the symptom of, of, of a person uh, depending upon God, and prayerlessness is a, is a symptom of a person who's stopped depending upon God. And so we saw that uh, when life overwhelms us and circumstances get our eyes off of Jesus and we go back to trying to figure everything out and trying to come up with a solution ourselves without depending on Christ, we've lost heart. We saw that the symptom of trying to achieve a ministry instead of receive it is a person who's lost heart. He's turned coward in battle. He's not going to trust God. He's going to go back to producing what he thinks he can do, and he's not trusting God. And that's in chapter 4, verse 1 of our text. We're actually going to look at that verse again today. True ministry is something received from God, not achieved for God. And a person who's trying to achieve it has lost heart. He's using his flesh. He's depending upon his flesh. Well, we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, when we lose sight of our future hope, we've lost heart. And this, this has happened so often, especially as age creeps up on us all. When we start focusing on the physical present, we've lost hope. You see, we've lost heart. What he's trying to say is, 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 is when you look ahead, you see the great things that are ahead for us. This life is a vapor. It's just here and it's gone. But all the eternity that we'll spend with him. Paul says, he says that our outer man is decaying and our inner man is growing stronger. Probably in this service more than any other, we understand that verse. <laughs> These young people haven't even had a reflux yet. They had not got a clue what waits on them. You know, getting older is not for sissies, and all of us understand that. Paul said to these very Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, if that's all it's about, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see, we have something great that's ahead of us. We saw in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 how that when we grow impatient, waiting on results, we've lost heart. We've taken our focus off the law of the harvest. And he tells us in verse 7 and 8 of, of Galatians 6, he talks about sowing and reaping and, and all of that and sowing in the right field. And then he says in verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. That law of the harvest, I have to remember it every day. And I've asked you to pray for me. That's, it's, it's helpful to me that the law of the harvest is you sow the right seed but you're going to get exactly what you sow. So keep sowing the right kind of seed. Make the right choices. Sow in the field of the Spirit by saying yes to Christ.
But not only that, you reap more than you sow. Every time you plant seed, you're going to get more than what you planted. But then thirdly, you're going to reap a whole lot later than when you planted. And God's timing has to figure in here. It, you, can, you can have a squash plant overnight and, and it blows away the first storm, but an oak tree takes a long time to take root and for it to come up and be what it ought to be. Well, Paul taught us that in 2 Thessalonians also, verse, chapter 3, verse 10 through 13, that when we grow undisciplined in the ordinary, practical, mundane things of life, we've lost heart. Because when this was so good this past week to tell these young people that were at camp, paying our bills, getting a job, uh, doing the things that we're supposed to do is just as spiritual as going on a retreat or a mission trip. This is part of life. And we are to be good citizens of this earth, not only of heaven, but we're to do the things we're responsible to do. And when a person just slacks off of that responsibility, it's obvious he's lost heart. And somehow his focus has changed away from Christ. Well... Today we want to look at the secret of one who has not lost heart. And the reason I, the, the, it's, this is not a formula. And I don't want you to understand it as such. Perhaps my title may mislead you. It's almost as if, if you do these three things. No, these things are the results of something else. The, Paul's life could be centered and explained in the fact that Christ was his life. And he lived yielded to Christ, chained to his chariot, as we saw back in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. And the things we'll see today... They are the secret of his life, but again, don't think of them as a formula. Think of them as the really a symptomatic type of thing of a person. The real secret is he lets Jesus be Jesus in him. Living grace is what, is what it's all about. But let me read the verses to you, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll jump in. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But instead, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now, let's look very carefully at these verses, and let's just see if we might be encouraged, challenged, about a man who did not lose heart. Let's just see what God might say to our hearts today. First of all, Paul did not lose heart because he was grateful for his ministry. Boy, that's a great word, isn't it? Gratefulness. He was grateful for his ministry. This is something that God had done. Uh, there's, there's so much spiritual pride in ministry today, but you didn't see this with Paul. Paul understood something. It says in verse 1, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, what ministry is he talking about? Well, certainly the ministry of a new covenant, servants of a new covenant, but you have to even go further than that. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember Galatians? Peter had the assignment to the, to the Jewish world, and Paul had the assignment to the Gentile world. He was a, an apostle, but also he was a preacher. He, he, he took a message. Uh, an apostle was one sent forth with a message, and the message that he had was the message of that new covenant. That was his, that was his life. That was his calling. That was his assignment. It's unfortunate that there's a chapter break here, and it says chapter 4 and then verse 1. 
Because when this letter was written, there were no chapters or verses, and somebody put those in. And sometimes when you come to a new chapter, you think Paul is changing subject, but he's not. It's continuation of what he's already said. In fact, we're helped here because he put the word therefore in the verse. That's the first word of verse 1 of chapter 4. Anytime you see a therefore, look to see what it's therefore. That's right. <laughs> And he's already told us what it's there for. He's a servant of a new covenant, a minister of a new covenant. Paul is continuing his thoughts on being a servant of a new covenant. Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, his ministry to the Gentiles. But the real thing he's talking about is I get the opportunity to preach the message of grace to a world that has never heard it. It was a gift from God. In fact, you can tell that in the verb tense of the phrase, as we receive mercy. It's in the aorist indicative passive. Aorist tense means at the same time I got saved, God assigned me. Indicative voice means that, that you can take that to the bank. And then when you put it in the, I mean, the indicative mood, but when you put it in the passive voice, passive voice means somebody else initiated this action. It, I'm benefiting from it, but I didn't initiate it. In other words, Paul didn't go after a ministry. The ministry came after him. God's the one who initiated it into his life. Now, when you add the word mercy into this equation, knowing that Paul didn't seek this ministry, Paul didn't even really seek God. God sought him and found him on that Damascus road. And God gave him the ministry. Well, you add to that the word mercy, and you've got exactly the understanding that ministry here was totally undeserved. Now, for whatever reason, there's a lot of Christians that don't see this. They still think they can do something for God. They don't understand that the ministry is even undeserved. Not only does it come from God, we don't deserve it to begin with. Mercy is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Paul's salvation, Paul's ministry, Paul's message were all given by the grace and the mercy of God. His ministry was a gift out of the very loving heart of God, and he didn't deserve it. And if anybody understood that, Paul did. That was a secret of his not losing heart. When you realize that God gave you the ministry, when you realize that what God initiates, God sustains, you're not going to lose heart. And what this does, it begins to frame an attitude of gratitude. And that's what you see in Paul. That's the secret of a person's life. He understands that his ministry is not from himself. His ministry is from God. And if God wants to do something through him, then he's just simply a vessel to accommodate that work. Paul's even mentioning the mercy of God, as I said, in connection with his ministry shows, again, he has a deep appreciation. It's a privilege for him to do what he does. The fact that his ministry was preaching the awesome good news of the new covenant, which, was, uh, which had transformed his own life, produced such a gratitude in his heart. This old legalist, man, can't you see the counsel of God in heaven when they said, we need, a, we need somebody to preach the message of grace to the Gentile world, but he's got to be a legalist. He's got to know the law to his toes. And before he was ever born, it says in Galatians, in his mother's womb, God already had decided it's going to be Paul. Here's that old boy growing up think, thinking he was going to do something for God, if you've ever read his pedigree. And then finally on the Damascus Road, God just wipes him out. And he sees it. I know when it hit me, I cried for three days till my nose bled. And I don't, and Paul was blinded for three days. It's incredible how when God reveals to you what grace is, how transforming it is in your life, and then what a thrill, what a privilege to take that message 
to people who have never heard. This is why in chapter 3, he said he spoke so boldly. He said, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Here's an old legalist that's been changed to the message of grace, and he said, I speak with boldness. The hope that Paul was referring to is that the glory of God has now come to live in him and is changing him every day and will come to live in anyone who bows and trusts Christ as their Savior. He's being changed from glory to glory. What a privilege, Paul thought. You can see his heart coming out in the verse. What a privilege. What a gift to preach a message that literally sets people free. No wonder he didn't lose heart. No wonder. Daily he lived in the presence of God and drew upon his adequacy for his life. So we won't lose heart when we live in that gratitude, that attitude of gratitude, that gratefulness, when we're humble enough to admit that the ministry that God has given to us, the gift that he gave to us to, to accomplish that ministry, the results, they're all of God, and we don't deserve one ounce of any of it. It's such a privilege. It's such a privilege. We won't lose heart when we finally realize that ministry is received not achieved. I, you know, I don't know what Paul felt. I don't know the, I know the ministry God's given to me. Do you know the ministry God has given to you? You know, I've heard people say over the years, well, Brother Wayne, you're the minister, and we come to hear you, but we have other things we do. Now, that's in the book of Hesitations, folks. It's chapter 13, verse 5. You can memorize that one. Every person who's saved with it came a gift, with it came a function, a ministry, and with it came the effects that God's going to bring out in that person's life. Every single believer. None of us deserve it. God says, I'm going to include you with what I'm doing down there on earth. Now, it may be the dilemma this morning is we don't even know what our ministry is. I, 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 can't, I can't help you there. But I can say to you that whatever it is, it's a gift and it's a privilege. I, like I said, I don't know what Paul felt. I, I know a fraction, but I tell you one thing. You may think I preach a whole lot, but I want to tell you something. You don't know any better, greater joy that I get in, in being fulfilling the assignment and the ministry God has given. When I see sixth graders this past week, sixth graders, and I took the same outlines of messages I've preached right here. When I see sixth graders grasp it, and I see their lives transformed. There's nothing, there's nothing that touches me any more than that other than just being in the presence of God. It's, it's a joy. It's a privilege. You know, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, Chariots of Fire. Anybody see that movie besides me? I, every now and then they'll rerun it. I'm going to buy that thing because I'm going to get tired of watching for it when it comes back up. But I like that old boy that's a Christian. He had such convictions and it came out. Now that guy gave him the note, if you honor God, God will honor you. I'm not sure how biblical that is. God honors us when we don't honor him. But anyway, that's all right. But I like one statement he made in the movie. And he said this. He said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. And I, I have to identify with that. I, I'm not so sure theologically where we can anchor all of that. But I tell you one thing, I can identify with what he's saying. When you realize you don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. And there's a gratitude. There's a gratefulness in your heart. You're not going to lose heart. Matter of fact, your whole focus is on depending on him. You know that your ministry was received, not achieved. That's a secret of somebody who doesn't lose heart. Live in that attitude of gratitude and receive what God has given you as a deep, loving pr pr uh, a privilege that he's given to you. Well, 
Secondly, not only was he grateful for his ministry, he was careful about his manner. I could have said method. The way he went about his ministry was very important to Paul because he was grateful that it came from God. That if God gave it, only God could sustain it. He didn't lose heart because he had that carefulness in his character. Look, ministries are a dime a dozen. And he knew that. In verse 2, but we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. They were hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. He's identifying what that is. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Paul knew that in Corinth, there were a lot of people calling what they were doing ministry. And it was fake. It was false. And he knew that. Like I said, there are a dime a dozen. And he said, I'm very careful in my ministry not to put anything of me into it. I want God to get the glory for it. And therefore, the way I preach and what I say it is different than the way they do what they do. Now, he's already mentioned these folks before, if you've been with us. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, For we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of of God. Paul understood who, who was his audience, and he says it again in our passage here. Paul's ministry and Paul's message were entirely different than the false ministries and the, the selfish, proud, proud ministries because he was so grateful, he was careful to make sure that the one who initiated it got the glory for what he was doing in his life. He says in verse 2, we have renounced the things hidden. And the reason they're hidden is because of shame. Now, what's he talking about? The word renounced has the meaning of to speak against, to denounce, to renounce, but to put away. We don't incorporate their methods at all. Uh, there are other people in ministry, but it's all about them. It's all about their own twist they have on the word. It's all about their agenda. But we don't incorporate those methods at all. The tactics practiced by the false teachers were not practiced by Paul. Verse 2, he illustrates for us a deceptive message that they used. He, he just, if you just keep reading the verse, it explains itself. He says, not walking in craftiness. One of the methods that were hidden, and nobody could see it right up front, was because they were ashamed of it, uh, the people that did it. And that was walking in craftiness. The word craftiness is the word panergia. It means cunning, shrewd, crafty. Every now and then I'll take my garbage out, and there comes that coyote or coyote, whatever y'all call it, whatever we call it. I don't know. It's, a, it's an animal. Comes down the street, and I could tell well, that, that animal's crafty. He's watching me. You know how they'll circle their prey during the day and then attack them at night? They wait until the darkness of night and the cover of night to do a lot of their, their killing. It's kind of that idea of a crafty, shrewd, cunning. It refers to the unscrupulous ways of false teachers who would stoop to any level to get their message across. Now, we know that from Galatia. They stooped to a level and try and put law back on the people. They did it in Colossae with Gnosticism. You, any second epistle that you read in Scripture usually deals with these false teachers in some way. This is Second Corinthians, and he's dealing with it here. He further uh, he clarifies this craftiness by another phrase. He says, or adulterating the Word of God. The word adulterating is volo. And dolo means, to in this context, to deceive by mixing error with truth. This was a common practice. 
One of the crafty things that they did, one of the things that were hidden to the people up front because they really, if they were ashamed of it, but they did it, was that they would put error right beside truth. Now, they wouldn't put the error first. They'd put the truth first, and they would disarm the people by the truth, and then they would slip in the error, and nobody was paying attention. I was out in California several years ago, and Dr. Rick Shepard will be with us for Equip this summer again, was with me. And he was in the room next door, and, and I was watching. We was getting ready to go to a conference at Grace Community. And as I, looked at the, as I looked at the television, a guy was preaching. And I knew this particular individual, knew where he was off theologically, but yet I watched him, and on faith, he was absolutely astounding. For 30 minutes almost, 20 to 30 minutes, he was just, I mean, this, as good as anything you wanted to hear. I called Rick. I said, Rick, get over here as fast as you can. I said, now listen to what he's saying. Is he right? And boy, Rick was there. Oh, hey, that's good. Oh, oh. I said, now watch what he's going to do. He's going to take 30 minutes of truth and use it in 20 minutes to prove error. Watch what he does. And you see, when he had disarmed everybody by them thinking, boy, he must be, golly, that's good. Then he slipped the error in, and nobody, the people were yelling and cheering and, and clapping, and the crowd was just, the place was just packed with people. And I'm thinking, does anybody understand sound doctrine anymore? But that was going on. Nothing new under the sun. That was going on in Paul's day. Listen to what Peter says about it. He says the very same thing in, in his second epistle that deals with false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 2 and 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And Peter says, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And then he says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That little word false in that phrase where it says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That little word false is interesting. It's the word in the Greek that we get the word plastic from. Now, I don't know if you know about it, but you can take plastic and heat it, and what can you do with it? Anything you want to do with it. And you know how a false teacher can heat up a crowd. They can get them emotionally charged. They've got to have that going first. And once you heat up the crowd, you can take anything that you want to say, change the meaning of it, and get people to believe whatever you want them to believe if they do not understand sound doctrine. He takes his words, a false teacher will, change the meanings of them, and you don't know that, and use them to manipulate a crowd like nothing you've ever seen. But Paul is not that way. Paul understands how they, what they did. The apostle Paul said, wait a minute, whoa, that's not us. He said, man, first of all, I don't even deserve the ministry I have. And secondly, if the one who initiated it sustains it, he's going to have to be the one doing it. We don't employ those kind of methods. He says, look at the contrast. He says, but by the manifestation of truth. I love that. The word manifestation is the word phanerosis, which means to make something so clearly visible, everybody can see it. Nothing hidden at all. Everything's seen. Everything's open. Paul's manner of preaching, the, 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 past, the message of the, of the new covenant, was so open, so honest, and so clear, everybody knew what he was saying. There was no, it either offended or they responded to it, but everybody knew exactly what he was saying. He had no hidden agenda, and they knew that. 
He says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, the word commending here doesn't mean commending ourselves in the sense of who we are as much as it does the message that we're preaching because he's commending himself or their message has the word of presenting something that's worthy, a message that is worthy. Paul says that his preaching was so honest and truthful that it was committed to the verdict of every man's conscience. You see, where the false teachers appeal to the flesh of man, Paul appealed to the conscience of man, the deep area of man that has where the spiritual discernment was. And the people could discern whether or not they could hear truth. But the reason he did this was, and it all builds together, is that the most important audience that Paul felt that he had was God himself. He says, in the sight of God. Paul knew that every time he spoke, he was speaking in the presence of God. Christ lived in him. I wish I could tell you, but there's no way to tell you. If you're a teacher or a preacher out there, you know what I'm talking about. Right now, my hands are sweaty. I noticed right before I came up here, I had a nauseated feeling in my stomach. It doesn't matter if I've had breakfast or I don't have breakfast. It's always there. It's there if there's 10 people. It's there if there's 1,000 people. It's there if there's 5,000 people. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because it's been drilled in my head a long time ago. God is in this place this morning. And I'm not just speaking to you as an audience. I'm speaking to him as an audience. And I want to tell you something. James says that anybody who stands up and takes the word of God will stand in a greater judgment one day for how he accurately handled the word of God. And Paul understood that. How can there be a hidden agenda when you're standing in the presence of God? God lived in him. And then he says in verse 3, after clarifying that, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. You see, what Paul is saying is, my message is so clear, and it's so, such a manifestation of truth, some people will reject it. But if it's a veil to them and they can't understand, it's not because of my preaching, it's because of their perishing and unwillingness to believe. It's a big difference there. Like Roy Hessian told me years ago, Wayne, God will never judge you for whether people responded to your message or not. He will judge you, however, for how you set the table. So you better get in the Word and get before Him and make sure when you stand up, you're speaking in the presence of God. That's what Paul is talking about. And Paul said it's clear that there's no way anybody can misunderstand it. So if there is a veil which has blinded them in any way, it's not because of the preaching. Now, he had said this earlier about uh, how the, the veil would be there, and, and he even says it more succinctly in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 2. He says, For we are a fragrance of, of, God, of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Boy, what a sweet smell. But and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul said, I don't know how to figure this out. I can just be who I am. I can just be clear and honest. I can't make decisions for people whether they see it or not. That's God's business. No man's adequate to figure that one out. So he continues in verse 4. And he talks about those people who were perishing. He talks about the veil on their eyes, which is nothing that he put there, but somebody else has put there. It says, in whose case the God of this world. Now, who is the God of this world? That's the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, we know 
that amongst those unbelievers, it have to be factored in what he taught us earlier about the Jewish people that we love and want that message to get to. But if they continue to hold to the law, he says a veil is put over their face. They can't see. They can't understand because they're clinging to that which has died away and faded away. But what about the Gentiles? What do we do with that? How can they be blinded? Well, we know that he says in another place, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks a foolishness. Maybe it's just the very message itself and to people who have to figure everything out. Maybe that's part of it. But you know one of the thoughts I had, and it's not inerrant, so you can just put it in there, Wayne's thought. Probably had pizza last night. But one of the thoughts that came to me as I was studying this is that the false tactics of the false teachers could be one of the things that's veiled people from hearing the true gospel. You turn your television set on, you might have three programs that are solid as a rock, you will have 30 that are not. And when people see the shenanigans and they see the obvious deceit, they can see people exposed for what they are, get off the air, come back on three years later on, and have a crowd that just knock your eyes out, and that the money and everything that goes into it could be one of the tools that he's suggesting that causes the unbeliever not to see. Well, I know there are many more, and I, and I understand that the world has been blinded in many ways. But I tell you what, when you see that health, wealth, heresy around, it doesn't have anything to do with Scripture. It makes you wonder how people just turn it off to start with, even though the person they might be listening to might be solid. Well, whatever. So we see how Paul kept from losing heart. It was all Christ in him, but yet there was a gratitude, an attitude of gratitude. He was grateful for his ministry. He saw it as a privilege. He didn't see it as a job. He didn't see it as, as a, a drudgery. He saw it as an awesome privilege, and he did not deserve that privilege. But in that gratefulness caused him to be careful, careful in the manner in which he went about that ministry because he was up against others who were doing it a fleshly way. And he wanted to make sure God was honored and that he did what he did in the sight of God. And then thirdly, he was humble about his message. A humility that you don't see in many places, but he had it in verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Paul was not in love with himself. He didn't have that virus that some preachers have when they stand in front of a mirror and sing, How Great Thou Art. You know, he, he, did, he wasn't in any way thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think. The fact that Paul had received the ministry from Christ, the fact that he didn't deserve it, the fact that he saw the false ministries all around him, it, it just caused him to be humble about his message. He didn't, he, he didn't have people walk away impressed with Paul. He had people walk away impressed with who Jesus is and what Jesus wanted to do in their lives. He said that to the Corinthians. He said, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom. I didn't come with methods, and I didn't come with a message that would in any way overwhelm what the Word of God has to say. I want people to leave impressed with one thing, and that's Christ. That was his heart. In chapter 10, Actually, 10 through 18, but I'm just going to read two verses. Verse 17 and 18 really captures his thought when he compares himself to these other ministries. He says, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. In other words, that's the man who's approved. 
In other words, if he's pleasing men, he's not pleasing God. And so he said, I live my life to please God. And if he commends me, if he approves of me, then I'm approved. It doesn't matter what men think. Paul is such an example of true humility. He did not in any way trust in himself, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 1, 9. He didn't in any way commend himself, as we saw in chapter 3, 2 through 5. And here, he doesn't in any way preach himself. He just simply preaches Christ and, and the fullness that Christ offers to individuals who bow before him. So he only wanted to preach the message that had overwhelmed his own life. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Christ was his life. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life, Paul wrote that. Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul wrote that. Galatians 2, 20, it's not me, it's Christ living in me. And Paul wrote that. In fact, it's through every one of his epistles. And the Apostle Paul didn't have anything to interject. There was nothing about Paul that would be impressive to people or especially to God. So he just preached Christ. He just preached Christ. Did he share his illustrations out of his own life? Absolutely. Very honest about himself. But he simply preached Christ. Christ was his life. He was a true bondservant to Christ. The word is doulos, a slave. And he was truly a servant to people. But it was all, he says, for Jesus' sake. Everything he did was for Jesus' sake. No wonder he didn't lose heart. No wonder he didn't lose heart. Why would he go back to his flesh when he had this kind of attitude that was spawned by the transforming work of God in his life? Grateful for his ministry. Knew he didn't deserve it. Careful about his manner, his method of going about, making sure that he, his agenda or anything about him wasn't interjected into the message to twist it. And he was humble in his message. It wasn't about him. It was about Christ. What about you today? What about you today? What is your ministry? What is it that God's saying to you today? I wonder if many of us have retired from ministry. You know, you don't retire from ministry. You just refire. <laughs> as long as your heart's beating, God's got a purpose. How do you feel about that purpose? Well, Lord, you're letting me live, but I'm full of pain. And God says, I know, because I'm not through with you, and you're one of the few people I can trust to suffer. Oh. You mean to tell me as long as I'm on this earth, God, you have a purpose for me if I'm a believer? Absolutely. Do I deserve this? Absolutely not. But he loves me enough that he wants to use me until that day. Had a little lady, Chattanooga that uh, she couldn't get out of bed. And she said, I just want to go on and be with God. I said, why? He's not through with you yet. What can I do but pray? I said, hey, that's not bad. And buddy, she became a prayer warrior. I told her one day, if she ever prays for me to die, I'm going to crawl in the box. <laughs> Good, not a living. And finally, God was finished and said, okay, now come on over here. You're closer to my house and you're already yours. Come on over to my house. And she's with him today. Isn't that awesome? That's life. Why would anybody want to get discouraged or depressed knowing that Christ is their life? He is eternal life, and we are in him and with him forever. <laughs> I don't know, but I've done it, and you have too, and it just makes us go back and be perplexed, doesn't it? The flesh is a lot stronger than we thought it was, but we don't have to lose heart. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 